Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up, coming to you from the All Dulles Area Muslim Society Center in Sterling, Virginia, where I interviewed Attorney General Loretta Lynch. She came here to discuss the rise in hate crimes against Muslims, just as she's going to Harvey Milk High School and the Stonewall National Monument in New York City on December 13th to put the spotlight on violence against LGBT Americans. The conversation started with a discussion about Russian involvement in the U.S. presidential election and the conflict between the CIA and the FBI in assessing that involvement. But then it moved to a discussion about DOJ, its role in safeguarding the civil rights of Americans, and why she says... The highest public office is that of private citizen. You can hear the rest right now. Attorney General Lynch, thank you very much for being on Cape Up. Thank you for having me. And if I remember correctly, this is your very first podcast? It is. Well, this is this is great. We've made Cape Up history here. I really appreciate your taking the time. We are here after your speech at the All Dulles Area Muslim Society Center here in Sterling, Virginia. And before we get to the main topic of your talk today, which is about the increase in hate crimes in the country, I do have to talk to you about a little bit of the, the news of the day, and that is about um, Russian interference into our democratic process into the last uh, presidential election. Now, do you believe there's proof that the Russians and Russian President Putin hacked the emails for the purposes of getting Donald Trump elected president? So over a month ago, the intelligence community did put out a statement indicating that um, they were asserting that it was the Russian government who was responsible for a number of intrusions into our system and that they were making those attempts in an effort to try and influence our election. Uh, That was, of course, based upon careful study, careful research, careful review of all the information they had. Now, why is there this tension between the CIA and the FBI, which is a part of the Justice Department, over the question of whether there is proof that the Russians were involved? Well, I think I think actually I wouldn't actually call it tension, but I would call it simply the interplay of two different systems. The CIA is part of the intelligence community. They have access to sources um, and methods of gaining information, all classified. Um, And when they can make an assessment about the nature of interference in our system, as they did with regard to Russia, they're able to do so. The FBI, which, as you know, is investigating the hacks into the emails of the DNC. Um, and uh, and the DNCCC uh, as well is doing an investigative process using different methods. And so um, what you will find is that agencies that are talking about based on different platforms of knowledge will be very careful about the kind of assessment they can make. Mainly it is because neither agency wants to overstate. But I will stress that the intelligence community has put forth a statement saying that, uh, with great confidence, we have a view and a belief that the Russian government did try and interfere with the election. Now, part of the the, the uh, conversation that's been happening is motivation versus intent. Does it matter when it comes to our democratic process and democratic institutions, motivation versus intent? 
I think when it comes to the fact that it is an assault upon the integrity of our democratic system, uh, both are equally pernicious. Uh, One of the things, as you know, the president has ordered a review of Russian activity into the system, uh, into whether or not there's been any impact at all. Uh, Looking at this year, also 2008, when we did have some hacks, both into the Obama campaign and the McCain campaign, uh, and also 2012, to make sure we look back also and using the techniques that we have now to determine whether or not there were attempts to either gather information, exfiltrate information, influence um, anything regarding the election, whether it's opinion or uh, or anything else. So when it comes to motivation versus intent, e- both are equally pernicious. And how damaging is it to have Americans, particularly folks associated with the incoming administration, to cast doubt on intelligence from the intelligence community? Well, you know, I will, I think we have to give them time to spend time with the intelligence community, make their own assessments. I can't speak to their views or their opinions. What I can speak to is the work that this administration has been doing for several months in reviewing this issue, as well as reviewing the information that we have that, uh, with respect to other countries as well, in Europe and Eurasia, Moscow has been attempting to involve itself in elections there. Marrying that information and data up in a way that we can provide information to the American public is something that we feel is a responsibility of this administration. And do you, how concerned are you by the reports that the uh, incoming president has not taken full advantage of the intelligence briefings that um, he is um, afforded? Well, you know, I, I leave it to the new administration to determine how they're going to manage the, the flow of intelligence uh, and how they'll handle those issues. Uh, what I can say is that we are very committed in the Obama administration to making sure that all relevant uh, information is reviewed and analyzed. And to the extent that we can, we provide that information to the American people. Of course, much of it is classified. Uh, but that was why we put out, as I said over a month ago, the statement from the intelligence community about Russian influence or their attempted influence, I should say say on the election. That is why the president has ordered this review of the last three election cycles to determine what we can find out and what information we can share with people, because it is something that needs to be known. All of us have an interest in making sure that our uh, electoral systems are free from interference. It's part of our democracy. This is a bipartisan issue and it's something that's of concern to all Americans. So, Madam Attorney General, why was it important for you to come here today to the All Dallas Area Muslim Society Center here in Sterling, Virginia, as I said at the outset uh, of this interview? This Muslim Center has been so instrumental in community interest, um, community affairs, raising uh, community interest in what the Department of Justice has been doing, also making sure that they are a conduit of information to the Muslim community about issues of concern. Um, so we picked this location because of its large reach and also its large interfaith nexus as well. This center has reached out to religious leaders from all faiths who share a common interest in making sure that all Americans are kept safe safe, but also share a common concern in the targeting of Muslim Americans. It's an important message to bring now. As you note, uh, we just did release the hate crime statistics from Mm -hmm. 2015. That's a year ago. So we haven't been able to tabulate 2016 yet. That will come. But even in 2015, we were seeing an alarming increase in hate crimes overall, in particular hate crimes directed against Muslims and those perceived to be Muslims, 67%. When we talk about numbers and statistics, it's easy to forget these are people. 
something happened to people at an increase of 67% from the year before. So well, what did happen? I mean, why um, are we seeing increases that we haven't seen since 2001? Is it something in the air? Is it the tone? Is it the rhetoric? Was it the campaign? You know, I'm not sure we can we can really winnow it down to any one thing. I think if we look back at um, 2001 after 9-11, what we saw, of course, was a spike in hate crimes directed against Muslim Americans, people perceived to be Muslim. And it was really based in fear. Uh, America had been attacked. People were reacting out of anger, out of fear, out of misunderstanding of not even knowing um, which groups are Muslim and which aren't, um, out of taking the law into their own hands. Certainly, we often see a backlash after we do a number of successful terrorism cases in specific communities. You'll see an increase in bullying in the school system, for example. You'll see an increase in community members experiencing harassment on the streets. But that tends to go away after the notoriety of a, of a particular case. I do think that the increased discussion and concern um, about ISIL, for example, about its reach, uh, about the vulnerability of so many people to its message and the concerns that people have, uh, both about homegrown extremists here as well as acts that we've seen overseas, have, have begun to replicate the same atmosphere of fear and concern that we saw after 9-11. When you um, spoke to the, um, to the group here this morning, morning, um, you said, you, you mentioned the statistics, you talked about the numbers, but then you were very, you were, um, very emphatic about making sure people understood that there were people behind the numbers. You mentioned uh, a case in Connecticut, a case in North Carolina, and I believe a case in Kansas. Can yes. you talk about those briefly? Yes, I, I think the case in Connecticut was where someone was shooting at a mosque um, and where someone, um, and again, I you know, don't want to get the states confused, mm-hmm. but we've seen instances where people have, have tried to firebomb mosques or religious schools. We've seen instances of not just bullying in school, but assaults in school, people yanking the hijabs off of young women, threatening uh, students that they believe to be or know to be Muslim, um, as well as incidents on airplanes, uh, women being insulted and assaulted, again, over their, their headgear. Um, and so this is growing and it's increasing at a very, very high rate. Again, I think it's because there's an atmosphere of fear that usually generates this kind of action. And that fear comes from any number of sources. That's why you've got to be careful um, not to try and cabinet into one particular cause, but make sure that we address all the issues there. A lot of it, frankly, is, is a lack of understanding about the collective contribution and role of Muslim Americans in our society. We've had this discussion since 9-11, when so many Muslim Americans died, frankly, in those attacks, along with other Americans also. Um, that this was not something that was coming from the the larger religion per se, but people who were choosing to pervert the religion and try and establish some legitimacy for what is really not Islam at all. Now, of course, these individuals have to be dealt with, and we do that with a very, very strong response in the national security area, and that will continue in the Department of Justice. But at the same time, we have to be clear that The enemy that we are facing is not the neighbor next door. It's not the mosque down the street that is teaching faith and love and peace. It's not the Muslim American soldier who's fighting and dying for his country. And so we can do both. We can absolutely fight the war on terror 
hold people accountable, um, mount vigorous prosecutions, and and bring people to justice without sacrificing our values and our ideals, and, and without, frankly, making stereotypes um, out of our Muslim American friends and neighbors. But how, I mean, how hard is that going to be, though, when you know we have people who have run for elective office who have um, disparaged gold star families, who has proposed uh, a registry of Muslims in this country. I mean, I know you say that you know we cannot, ca- I think the word you used was cabinet into one particular reason, that there are many reasons for the uptick in hate crimes against Muslim Americans. But, you know, we can't not ignore the rhetoric coming from the incoming president-elect and many of the people who su- who support him, no? Well, look, I have to say that, you know, I think we have to see how the incoming administration marries up policy to rhetoric. But I agree with you that angry and divisive rhetoric, regardless of who it comes from, is concerning. Um, but I think we're also seeing an increase in that kind of rhetoric from people on the street, uh, from people in inst- other institutions as well, who are making these comments about Muslim Americans. But what I would say is that, um, you know, we have seen an increase in this divisive rhetoric from all quarters. But it's not the only voice in America. It's not the only voice of America. As I also said today, the highest public office is that of private citizen. And private citizens are speaking out against the kind of rhetoric and divisive words that we're hearing. Um, the people here at the Interfaith Center are working with young people to make sure that they understand the values of America and what it means to sacrifice and be American. And they're making the kind of contributions that their neighbors are recognizing and respecting. Uh, and so they're being seen as the all-around Americans that they are. Yes, there's divisive rhetoric out there at all levels in our society. That's unfortunate. It's sad. It's tragic. It's actually always been there. If you look back at the civil rights movement, we saw some very, very divisive and angry uh, and dangerous rhetoric there as well. And the groups that were working towards a better and freer America used that to spur people onward, used it to inspire people to teach them that their children had to overcome that and do better. Well, angry and, and dangerous rhetoric during the civil rights movement, but what we also had at that time was leadership. One of the great things about um, coming to events like this, especially where you know high-ranking officials are giving remarks, remarks are that you get the remarks as prepared for delivery, and you follow along. And w- what was terrific about following along with you today is where you ad-libbed. And, uh, you know, from doing this for a while, you get to understand a person's passion, a person's depth of knowledge, a person's, whether the person really gives a damn when they go, when they ad lib. And there were many moments where you not only ad libbed a word, you ad libbed whole paragraphs, which told me that this is, you're not just going through the motions here when you talk about when you talk about hate crimes, when you talk about who we are as Americans and our ideals, um, you were very, very emphatic. And so, yes, there's, you know, angry and dangerous rhetoric. But in those when there's angry and dangerous rhetoric, and especially in fearful times, people look to their leaders, elected or appointed, to get signals from them about how serious an issue is. And when people hear you, 
for instance, when H it was at HB2 uh, in North Carolina and you um, talked to the nation about what the Justice Department was going to do and you looked at the camera and you said, I want to talk to our transgender, uh, transgender Americans, our fellow citizens, and say, you know, we are there for the, we are there for you. One of the things that I think people are fearful of is that when you go away, come January twentieth, twenty seventeen, if not sooner, you're going to leave sooner. I'm running through the tape. Okay. So the, once you leave, once President Obama leaves, once the Obama administration is gone, that that leadership that's been there at the top and at the Justice Department with that will go the care and concern for all the people you talk to in in the center today and around the country who have come to look at the Justice Department as the backstop for their rights. Well, you know, I, I appreciate that because um, uh, I do care very deeply about these issues. They're very important to me personally. They're very important to me professionally. Um, having been the beneficiary of a lot of people who worked very hard to make sure that I had the right to go to school, to have the education that I was able to have, um, and to advance as I did, um, it's very meaningful to me to carry on this work. But what I'll say is, you know, leaders come from all different ranks. Leaders come from everywhere. And at a time when people, you know, for whatever reason, may not think they have a voice within a particular place in government, that's when we see people emerging uh, from the groups themselves to bring their voices to government to be heard. That we've seen that, you know, generation after generation, uh, when people have felt that even if they had leaders who were responsive, maybe they didn't quite understand the issues. Maybe they didn't understand the importance of it. You know, one of the things that I always found so interesting when you, when you look back at the civil rights movement, was how many times leaders acknowledged the importance of the issues but told the movement to wait, whether mm-hmm. it was literally emancipation. People were told, let's do gradual emancipation, like literally, let's emancipate half of you now and half of you in 20 years. I mean, that was what happened from people who were ostensibly sympathetic uh, to the cause to people who didn't know if the Emancipation Proclamation was coming at the right time to people who told King and Abernathy and all of those leaders that they needed to wait and that people, the country would catch up to them. So even when you have leaders there that you feel are sympathetic to you, you may not always get the timing that you want. And that's why this is a partnership. It's not just me at the Department of Justice expressing these views. They're the career people who will stay there and will carry on these cases. It's also not just the Department of Justice. It's people who bring these cases to us, who bring these issues to us, who say, you have to take us seriously. And those are the voices that I'm counting on to emerge. And and so I was going to say, um, what happens when in the next administration, I mean, you've got career people there, and they are hardworking, and they are professional, and they've got the law. They are all about the law. That I know. But the political appointees who come in have a, may, maybe have a different focus, a different uh, attention on things. How can you guarantee that the work of the Justice Department will continue in the new administration? One of the things you talked about was um, the lawsuits against zoning in various jurisdictions where they're denying building permits to houses of worship. And I think you said it's like 30 something percent are against 30, 38 percent against um, proposed mosques or or 
Mosques or religious schools. Or religious yeah. schools. So how can, is there a guarantee that that work that started under Attorney General Loretta Lynch will continue under the next Attorney General? Well, you know, obviously I can't speak to what priorities the next administration may set. Um, and, and all I can say is, is, that, is that there are no guarantees in life except that we have to work for what we want. Uh, and we have to be committed and we have to keep our voices raised to make sure that people who are in power know that these are important issues, that these are issues uh, where the law does compel a certain result, in my opinion, uh, and should be used in a certain way. So we may not have one particular voice or a few other voices, but there are other voices out there who can raise that cry and who can call for that work to continue to be done. And speaking of calls, so th- if I'm replaying the tape in my head of your speech, this is really a call to arms to citizens because you started out this conversation by saying like the the most important job is that of a private citizen a private citizen and so is the message today not only um we see the rise in hate crimes and we are going to address it as long as long as i'm here but to also say even when i'm not here you here in the room in america have a role to play that it's not just the attorney general who has to push these things. It's the private citizen that has to push. Absolutely. And it's the private citizen who may not think that their voice can be heard. It's the private citizen who may not think that uh, they can be effective. And when you look back over history at every movement that's advanced human rights and civil rights in this country, whether it's the civil rights movement, whether it's the women's movement, whether it's the LGBTQ movement, it has come from people who were not themselves necessarily planning to be activists, but were motivated either by an event or by an issue to come together. The spokespeople that we have now uh, in so many of the cases are average ordinary people who, if you talk to them a year before something occurred, they would never have thought they'd be at the forefront of an issue of transgender rights in a lawsuit headed to the Supreme Court. Um, or, you know, rights over whether or not we can give guidance to to classrooms on how to accommodate the needs of transgender students. Or they would they would have said to you, I never would have thought that someone would have taken a shotgun and fired at my mosque. Um, and yet, just like the plaintiffs in Brown who had to put their children, their children through an incredible test of, of, of will and courage, they have stepped up and taken on that mantle. And so the, the, those are the names that become the names of cases earlier. But just as the statistics sometimes can obscure the fact that these are real people, when we name the case after someone and refer to it in that light, we sometimes forget that there's a life behind that name, that that, that plaintiff has a family and a community, and that the day before the event occurred that thrust them into the limelight, they were an average, ordinary person just like you and me. And yet, they do great things. And I'm convinced, I am absolutely convinced, Jonathan, that with the work that we've been doing in the Justice Department and the groups that we've been mobilizing and speaking to, that people now see the power of their voice. People do not forget the power of their voice. They do not forget what it's like to have an impact in Washington at the local level, at the community level. These are issues that resonate throughout our society, um, at the family level as well. And so I'm convinced that this work will continue. One of the tradition is that the outgoing attorney general leaves a note for, for his or, in your case, her successor. 
what are you going to tell your successor? Well, that note is always private. Um, Have you written it yet? And uh, no, you you always traditionally wait until uh, those last few days uh, and write that and you leave it for the next attorney general. Uh, And I was a beneficiary of such a missive. And so I'll be providing one as well. Uh, And it is private, but I will tell you that very typically we talk about all of our common love for the Department of Justice and the ideals for which it stands. Attorney General Loretta Lynch, thanks very much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.